Genesis 46, verse 1. We'll read the whole chapter, verses 1 to 34. This is describing Jacob and his clan's migration to Egypt, from Canaan to Egypt. So Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will close your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And they took their livestock and their property, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and came to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his sons, who went to Egypt, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanok and Palu and Hezron and Carmi, and the sons of Simeon, Jemuel and Jamin and Ohad and Jachin and Zohar and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, and the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, and the sons of Judah, Er and Onan, and Shelah, and Perez, and Zerah. But Er and Onan died in the land of Israel, in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. And the sons of Issachar, Tola, and Puvah, and Yov, and Shimron. And the sons of Zebulun, Zered, and Elon, and Jahleel. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padan Aram, with his daughter Dinah. All his sons and his daughters numbered 33. And the sons of Gad, Ziphion, and Hagi, Shuni, and Esbon, Eri, and Arodi, and Areli. And the sons of Asher, Imnah, and Ishva, and Ishvi, and Berea, and their sister Sarah. And the sons of Berea, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to his daughter Leah, and she bore to Jacob these 16 persons. The sons of Jacob's wife, Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. Now to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Balah and Becher and Ashbel, Gerah and Naaman, Ehi and Rosh, Mupim and Hupim and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob. There were 14 persons in all. And the sons of Dan, Hushim. And the sons of Naphtali, Jazael and Guni and Jezer and Shilem. These are the sons of Bilhah whom Laban gave to his daughter Rachel and she bore these to Jacob. There were seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, his direct descendants, not including the wives of Jacob's sons, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. Now he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. And Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. Then Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, that you are still alive. And Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who were in the land of Canaan, have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. 
And it shall come about when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? That you shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, that you may live in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. Amen. So far, in this part of the book of Genesis, Joseph, not only was he sold as a slave in Egypt and mistreated and accused falsely and therefore imprisoned, imprisoned for a while, he was delivered from that because of dreams that he received and dreams that others received in reference to his life and future. And at this point, starting in chapter 41, 41 onward, his brothers have come to the land of Egypt because there's a famine in the land of Canaan and in Egypt and in surrounding countries. There's a famine, and that causes them to have to come to Joseph because Joseph was the only ruler of any of these nations who knew that there was going to be years of plenty and then years of famine, so he only prepared. The other nations did not prepare because they did not receive a word from God and they did not believe, even if they were told about this famine, seven years of famine, that it would come. Well, the brothers are surprised when eventually Joseph identifies himself, reveals that it is he who is one of their brothers, the one that they sold as a slave and left for dead, that he is the ruler of Egypt, second in charge after Pharaoh. Well, finally, they are convinced, they are convinced, they are astonished, and they agree that they need to go to Canaan and bring Jacob and the rest of the clan all into Egypt to be able to survive this famine because there were five more years in this famine. And that's what happens in chapter 46. Finally, Jacob and his whole family, his whole household, they all migrate to Egypt. And they come with the preparation and with the faith that God had endowed to them. That's how they come. The first seven verses is one segment that prepares us for their coming. Let's begin at verse, seven, uh, verse 1. So Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. In our narrative, remember, sometimes the patriarch Jacob is called Israel because God gave him that name in chapters 32 and 35. He gave him that name. And so there is an alternation between Jacob and Israel. Jacob, having to do with the fact that he supplanted the place of the firstborn and the place of privilege in the family because of God's election or God's predestination of him to be saved and not Esau, though Esau was firstborn. Jacob took the place and the eternal inheritance. Jacob received that because of God. That's Genesis 25, 23. But the name Israel has to do with another good and favorable part of Jacob's life. That is, when God appeared in human form in Genesis 32, 22 to 32, when God appeared to him in human form, God wrestled with him. That is, Christ wrestled with him. And Jacob was permitted to beat God in the wrestling match. I say permitted to to beat God because God was teaching a lesson through this, that Jacob, with God, must strive and struggle in life, and eventually he will be victorious. Not that God wants to defeat Jacob and create misery, but that he will have victory in God because God is the one who makes sure that Jacob has victory in Jacob's life. So Jacob was given another name, not a name to replace Jacob because the name Jacob is not to be seen as an ignoble, bad, dishonorable name, though many people take it that way. It is the opposite. And also, in the case of Israel, Israel means to strive with God or striven with God or struggled with God. That's what Israel means. And that's why he has this name too. And in the rest of Scripture, both names are used because none of them is necessarily a wrong or a bad name. Then... It says, he set out. He set out, why? 
Because in the previous chapter, his sons reported that Joseph is alive and he has invited everyone along with their possessions to migrate to Egypt. And he was astonished, but he eventually believed what his son said. After all, he has 11 sons reporting this, correct? Yeah. 11 sons. And likely by this point, they had established their character. Their character was not so good or godly in the past, but a conversion had taken place so that they become men of, of honor, men of integrity, reliable men, so that he can believe them, even if they say something very astonishing when Jacob had assumed that J uh, Joseph, his son, had died, that wild beasts had torn him up and he was dead. So he sets out based on the word or of testimony from his sons. He comes to Beersheba. Beersheba is a city in the southern part of the land of Canaan. This is a place where Abraham and Isaac established themselves at points in their life. And the, the famous wells were, were there, uh, dug. And that's where they also built altars to God and worshipped God. And Israel does the same in verse 1. He offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Offered sacrifices. Why would he do so here in this southern section of Canaan, which is not that far, relatively speaking, to get into the land of Egypt? Why would he do it there near Egypt? Well, because of his ancestors, Abraham and Isaac, and their faith, and their faith which was established or built up there in that city, but also because of the altar. And he is showing and signifying by these sacrifices that he trusts in God, he believes in God just like his forefathers, and he's not giving up the promises of God announced to his forefathers in reference to the land of Canaan, though he is going to migrate to Egypt and likely die in Egypt. He's not giving up on all that. He is praising God, thanking God, remembering God with the sacrifices that he offers. And also, how do we know that he's doing this? Another factor is at the end. It says, to the God of his father Isaac. He does, doesn't say necessarily the God of Abraham or Abraham and Isaac. He just says Isaac. And not that it's wrong to say Abraham or Abraham and Isaac. But why Isaac? Because... In Abraham's family, the promises of salvation were not given or not received to, by Ishmael, but they were received by Isaac. So if he just refers to Isaac, it is an indication that the promises of God of salvation in Christ were received by Abraham and also by Isaac. And that's why Isaac. Because Isaac is in distinction, contradistinction to Ishmael, because Isaac and Ishmael are brothers. Therefore, he's doing it on this basis, because he believed in whatever was received and taught uh, by Isaac. Received by Isaac and taught by Isaac to his family, including Jacob. Right. Verse 2, And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, God speaking in the night visions is not a new concept to some of us, but we may have overlooked it in reference to Jacob. Right here it says, He spoke, God spoke to Israel in visions of the night, which means a, a, few, a few things. One, Israel or Jacob was a prophet. We know that God reveals his word to prophets at night. He did so to Daniel the prophet. Daniel is the famous one who says, I, I, in the night visions I saw. Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 is the most famous one in reference to the coming of the Son of Man in the clouds, which is the coming of Christ in the clouds. Daniel seven thirteen. Also, in terms of prophecy, Numbers 12 6 to 8. Numbers 12, 6 to 8. It says this. Moses is highlighted as 
the supreme prophet in the sense in the sense given here. Numbers 12, verses 6 to 8. He said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant? against Moses. The reason Moses is separated or singled out, not because whatever he received was more the word of God than Jacob, not for that reason, Jacob or anybody else who receives visions of God in the night, but because God had an intimate, personal relationship and fellowship with Moses that he had not established with any other prophet. And the way, one way he showed some distance between himself and the rest of the righteous, godly, true prophets was to reveal his word to them in visions and dreams and in dark sayings. A dark saying is a riddle, a parable, a curious way of expression. He didn't do that with Moses. He had personal contact, regular contact with Moses for a long time, yeah. and he explained things literally and directly. This is that. He explained things like that to Moses so that Moses was not left in the dark and perplexed for a, a short time until God explained the meaning of the vision or the meaning of the dream, so forth, like that. But Jacob is a prophet by this. We also know that Jacob is a prophet because it says in Psalm 105, 8 to 15, Having mentioned Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in verses 8 to 15, he says of them in verse 15, Psalm 105, 15, Do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. That means Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were prophets. We should remember that God's word was revealed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and they were prophets of God. We have to establish that because people often impose ambiguity on what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew and believed, as though they were aimless wanderers groping in the dark all the time throughout their life, not knowing the will of God, not understanding the word of God, and having no clear direction for their life. That's not the way that they lived. Their occupation was nomadic in the sense that they were shepherds. Sheep herders, shepherds, they were like that, but they weren't aimless and in the dark in reference to the will of God for their life. Amen. They weren't that way at all. Verse 2. Jacob, Jacob. Which shows that God did not intend to abandon his first name, Jacob. And he repeats the name because God is making sure he gets Jacob's attention. It's nighttime, and what normally happens at nighttime? They sleep. But in this case, it may be that this was while he was awake and before he slept to keep him awake and make him realize, I'm going to give you this vision at night. Notice it's not called a dream, but it's called a vision. Right. A dream would have been while asleep, but a vision while he's awake, but he's awake at night, when naturally he would want to sleep and was about to sleep, God halted that by calling out his name twice to get his attention. And he, in the typical humble way, says, here I am. When God called to Abraham in Genesis 22, verse 1, Abraham also replied, here I am. When Samuel as a boy, was being called by God, but he thought he was being called by Eli, 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses, well, the whole chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 3, when he was being called by God, but thought it was Eli, he said, here I am. So this is showing the subdued, humble nature that Jacob had in his life. He was ready to do whatever God said. 
He knew it was God, and he was ready. Or remember even in Isaiah, Isaiah 6, 8, when the Lord says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? What did Isaiah say? After he realized his sins and was forgiven of his sins earlier um, in verses 1 to 7. Not his salvation, but in terms of his current life, he was forgiven of those sins in the previous paragraph. When God said, whom shall I send and who will go for us, what did Isaiah say? Here am I, send me. I'll go and I'll humbly go and do your will. The same with Jacob. Okay, now the assurance comes from God. Verses 3 to 4. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Why does he say that? To make him realize whatever promises were announced before apply now and God is still there with him and mindful of his circumstances. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for I will make you a great nation there. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Well, why would he be afraid to go down to Egypt? There could be more than one reason. Was Egypt a friendly place in terms of religion? Did they have God-fearers, godly men there? Was the gospel known and preached there? No. So he would be afraid for that reason. But he might also be afraid because of the promise or prophecy. It's actually both a warning and a promise in Genesis 15. Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis 15, Abraham is told by God about his descendants. Yep. Abraham is told, 15, 12. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. Terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it still becomes ominous in verse 17. And then God assures him in verses 18 to 21 that his descendants will indeed possess the land of Canaan. But this is yet to happen. And Jacob might be afraid. This is likely why he is afraid, because though he is supposed to go to Egypt and his families are supposed to migrate there, he knows that it's not going to be pleasant to them in the future. They're going to be oppressed and there's going to be great judgments that fall on the Egyptians before his descendants as a nation are able to be released or leave Egypt. This is why God assures him that he should not be afraid. It's going to be okay. Because God, he says, I will make you a great nation there. You will go and just a few of you, just 70 of you will go there, but eventually you will become a great nation. And that is a part of my purpose in your life and in the life of your descendants. So though difficulty awaits, you must go in spite of the difficulty and look beyond the difficulty, beyond the hardships, and to the blessing, you will become a great nation. He's going to become a great nation. Remember, we said this in Genesis 12 a great nation, both physically and spiritually. Both physically and spiritually. Physically, they will be numerous. They will be numerous, so numerous that they will be a country, a nation. But also, they will be a great nation in the spiritual sense. Many people, because of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, many people will put their faith in Christ among the Jews 
and from among the Gentiles, and they will be the true spiritual descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they all put their faith in Christ for that reason. So in this way, God assures him he will be a great nation. Furthermore, verse 4, I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. I will go down with you. So even there in Egypt, they will not be abandoned. Right. Even <laughs> during their times of affliction, they will not be abandoned. Why? Because God fills, he says, do I not fill the heavens? The heavens and the earth, Jeremiah 23, 23. God is with his people. Even Christ said, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Right. Matthew 18, uh, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And here, not only will he be with them, he'll also bring you up again. Bring you up again. What did he mean by you? He leaves it ambiguous here. The you could be one or both of these. Probably both. In one sense, the you because of his descendants. They will come up. Jacob knows he's not going to come up because it will take time for 70 people to become millions. And he's not going to live to see that from 70 to millions. So in that sense, he knows that he literally is not going to come up. But he will come up in terms of his bones. In Genesis chapter 50, when he dies, Joseph took pains to transport his bones from Egypt to Canaan and buried him in Canaan. Genesis chapter 50. In that sense, he was brought up from Egypt to Canaan. So two ways or both ways. That is, his descendants will come up and Jacob in his descendants. And then the other way, J Jacob's literal bones will come up because Joseph will take them up or transport them from Egypt to Canaan. Then it says, Joseph will close your eyes. Closing the eyes. When one dies, the eyes are typically open and somebody needs to close them. Somebody needs to close them. Well, who typically closed them? It was a close relative or a close friend. Now, closest does not mean by blood, but usually by relationship. If somebody who is endeared to another in the family, if the other dies, then the one who is the closest in terms of relationally, in terms of endearment, he would close the eye of the other, or the eyes of the others. And here, this is a blessing because it's showing that the older of the relative dies before the younger, and that's the way it should be. When the reverse happens, it's usually a tragedy. Right. But in this case, he's assured it's not going to happen to you, whether from Canaan to Egypt or some tragedy in Egypt. Um, nothing's going to happen to you or nothing's going to happen to Joseph. Joseph will survive and he'll be the one because he is your favorite yeah. oldest son of your favorite wife, Rachel. He's going to be the one who does it for you. This is an assurance to Jacob. Verse 5. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. He obeys the vision. This, rem this reminds us of the Apostle Paul who said, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. So in the same case here, Jacob is not disobedient to hearing the word of God, even though he knows it's not going to be all well and good. Yes, there will be some goodness, some prosperity he experiences, but that's not going to be everything he and his descendants experience. They still go anyways. And we see here, Pharaoh had made sure to supply him with all he needed to make sure the journey was successful. Verse 6, 
And they took their livestock and their property, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and came to Egypt, Jacob, and all his descendants with him, his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Both in verse, verses 5, 6, and 7, this emphasis on coming to Egypt with the approval of Pharaoh and even the supplies of Pharaoh is important because this is showing that it wasn't something Joseph secretly did behind Pharaoh's back and it wasn't something that Pharaoh disapproved of. It was a legal or appointed migration right. from one country to another. A legal Migration from one country to another. Verses 5, 6, and 7 indicate that. Furthermore, everything he owned was brought. Yep. Everything he owned, which means Jacob believed God's words, literally true, that that's what he must do, and he was willing to do it. Also, it shows his esteem in the clan. Yep. As the patriarch of the clan, shows his esteem because the others had to believe that Jacob knew what he was doing. They had to believe that. They also had to believe that the report of his sons was reliable enough for them to agree with the report of the sons and the, report, and the commitment of Jacob and even the vision of Jacob that we just read about, verses 2 to 4, that all of that was reliable so that they were willing to come without a mutiny, without an uprising and a disbanding of their unit, their livelihoods, and said, no, we want to stay here. We want to just stay here in Canaan. It's better for us in Canaan. We don't know what's going to happen in Egypt. We're familiar with our circumstances in Canaan. Egypt is foreign territory. We're not going to go to Egypt. They had to have some trust, significant trust, of Jacob to do so, Jacob and his sons. We see also in verse 7, by this point in history, Jacob has sons and grandsons. Yeah. He also has daughters and granddaughters, in the plural. Daughters and granddaughters. Though only one daughter is mentioned by name in verse 15, his daughter Dina, he had more daughters than just her, unnamed daughters, who also, so the sons... And the daughters had granddaughters and grandsons. They all came to Egypt. Now the genealogy. The genealogy takes up verses 8 to 27. 8 to 27. It is arranged in terms of his sons and the wives that Jacob had and which wives bore which sons and those sons, which grandchildren they had. That's how it is arranged. The sons' names in the first part, in verses one or 8 to 17, in 8 to 17, these are the sons that Jacob had with his wife Leah. From 8 to 17, Jacob and uh, I'm sorry, from 8 to 15. From 8 to 15 with Leah. And that total comes to 33. Children and grandchildren. Total is 33. Then we have, um, in verses 16, and 16 to 18, the wife Zilpah. Zilpah, who was given to him from Laban and Leah, Zilpah, and their children, and that is 16 persons, according to verse 18. Uh, we also see in verse 17, Asher, his, he had a daughter named Sarah. Now this is, though it looks like and might be pronounced similar to Sarah, it's not the same name, it happens to be like that here, but it's not the same name as the name Sarah, the wife of Abraham. Then, 
in verses 19 and 19 to 22. From 19 to 22, we have Rachel, Rachel's two sons, Joseph and Benjamin, and the sons born to Joseph in verse 20, Manasseh and Ephraim, from his Egyptian wife, Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. And then in 21, Benjamin's sons. And this totals 14 persons in all from Rachel. Then we have Bilhah, who is the maid of Rachel, Dan and Naphtali, verses 23 to 25. Bilhah, Dan and Naphtali and their sons. And then we have, and that's seven persons. Then we come to verse 26. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, his direct descendants, not including the wives of Jacob's sons, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. Now, this number 70, the main point, we should not miss the main point. The main point is to compare 70 with millions. Compare and contrast 70 in contrast to millions. Keep our place here in Genesis 46 and go to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. Exodus 1 verse 7. Exodus 1, 7. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. That's 1, verse 7. Were fruitful, increased greatly, multiplied exceedingly mighty. The land is filled with them. Then verses 8 and 9. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. This is where the trouble starts. Yep. This is a massive group in the land of Egypt, and now he is fearful. Well, how numerous did they become? We have an idea, one place of many places, Exodus 12, 37. Exodus 12, 37. Now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, aside from children. Yeah. 600,000 men on foot, aside from children. And then when we reach Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapters 1 and 2, there it becomes very clear, a pre very precise number of how many soldiers they had, 20 years old and upward. Soldiers at least 20 years old, whoever was able to go out to war. Numbers chapter 1, it is a census of it. And then by the time we reach verse 46, Numbers 1, 46, it says, these are the soldiers, 20 years old and upward, 603,550. 603,550 men of war. Right. Which means, if we have a very conservative estimate of four members in each household, then we have to have the population in the millions. Two to three million with a very conservative estimate. That means it could have been five million, seven million, maybe ten million. It could have been much higher than that. And... This is why the figure 70 is given, that God fulfilled his promises from 70 into the millions. And this is the beginning of God saying and showing to them, your descendants, physical and spiritual, will be like the stars of heaven and the sand of the seashore. However, now having said that, that's the main point. There is some uncertainty as to how to enumerate all of these names here and the numbers given and how it comes to the number 70. There are different ways to come to the number 70, which we won't 
um, get so particular to delve into that, there's no need for that because there's different ways to arrive at that number 70. Also, there are different ways to arrive at the number 75. 75, which is what Stephen says in Acts chapter 7, verse 14. In Acts chapter 7, verse 14, and in the Greek Old Testament of Deuteronomy 10, 22, the number 75 is there. The Greek Old Testament has two numbers. It has the number 70 in two places, and then it has, I'm sorry, it has the number 75 in two places, and the number 70 in Deuteronomy 10, 22. I, I said that in the reverse earlier. So the Greek Old Testament has two testimonies, 70 and 75. Stephen in Acts 7, 14 says 75. So we can arrive at the number 75 or at the number 70, depending on how these are counted. Those born in, in Canaan, those born in Egypt, it depends on what you mean and what, how we mean. The wives, it said there that not including the wives of his sons. Well, what happens if you include the wives of his sons, but don't include those sons that died in Canaan and those sons that were not yet born in Egypt? Do you see how the numbers can work differently? Okay, so the main point is it was a small number compared to how much or how numerous they ended up being. Verse 28. Actually, before I get to verse 28, why did I say all that? I said all that because if you read commentators and skeptics of the Bible, both in Christianity and outside of Christianity, they will nitpick this and just try to destroy the Bible or, or our faith in the Bible right. when there's no need to do so. There's no need whatsoever to do so. Okay, verse 28. Now he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Judah, probably because he took initiative, remember in the earlier chapters, he took initiative to be responsible for Benjamin. He showed himself to be reliable. And also the promise of the Christ is supposed to come through Judah. And for these reasons, there may have been some affinity and trustworthiness in Judah so that Judah is the one who shows the way to Goshen. Goshen is the biblical name. Outside the Bible, there are various names for that place and the major cities of that place. There, it is a handful of different names. But this place was in the northern part of Egypt, adjacent to the land of Canaan. It was a fertile area, and this area was designated for Israel to live there in this fertile area. Verse 29. Normally fertile. Verse 29. And Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. Joseph and father meet each other after many years. That is for a span of 22 years when his father thought that his son was dead. From the age, Joseph's age 17 to Joseph being 39. From 17 to 39. And now it's understandable why they weep. They're so happy. Yeah. This is a happy weeping, not a sad weeping. That they are able to see each other after so long when one thought the other was dead this occurs. Verse 30. Then Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, that you are still alive. When Israel says this, he's not saying it because he wants to die, because he hates life and God's purposes for him. He's not saying it for that reason. He's saying it akin to the way we say it sometimes. Sometimes, if we hear some very, very good news. Um, we say, I could die and go to heaven now. Because that good news is so good that we want to die in that happy condition and that's the way we want to die. We all want to die in a happy state. And so when we say that, I think that's the way Israel meant it here. And actually, he was 130 years old. He was yeah. old but not as old as Abraham or Isaac. So he knew he had some years left. 
And it so happens that he was 130 years, as it says in Genesis 47, 9. So Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my sojourning are 130. 130. And then in Genesis 47, 28, 47, 28, it says, Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. And he lived it in a very happy state. He had plenty, and whenever the famine ended, Joseph was still on the throne and looking after Jacob and all the people. It was still going on. And without being tormented, they were able to live alone, live in seclusion, and without the problems of the society. That's what he meant here. He wants to die happily, which is what we all should want. To die happily as much as we can control it instead of in misery. Okay? By the way, this is why people want to die at home. Speaking of one of the things people wanted to do, instead of dying in some strange facility in a hospital or some clinic, hospice uh, clinic, it's better to die at home where family are, where friends can see you, where you have a familiar setting. Um, that's the kind of desire Israel had because the best thing, the most important thing in his life, at least for 22 years, was being with Joseph and being with all of his children and grandchildren and then dying, seeing them happy, seeing them established in life, settled in life, then when he dies, he can die with a happy attitude, with a happy perspective of his life. Uh, 31, verse 31. And Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me and the men are shepherds for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And it shall come about when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? That you shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, that you may live in the land of Goshen for every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. Joseph will first preempt this meeting and interview by telling Pharaoh that his brothers and father's household have arrived according to plan and schedule, but also that they are shepherds, they are keepers of livestock, and they brought their livestock. That's another reason for saying so in verse 6. They took their livestock and their property, that they brought their livestock, they intend to keep them for their livelihood. This is all that they know, right? This is all that they know. This is what he intends for Pharaoh to hear, because it says here, keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers. So that Pharaoh doesn't say, okay, what other work can you do? Now that you are strangers here, I want to help you out. Let me give you some other occupation. And so that is averted, but also what's averted? close contact with the Egyptians. Because if they have close contact with the Egyptians, what will happen? They'll start worshiping idols, practicing immorality. Everything's going to happen when they have close contact with unbelievers, pagans. So they, had, they wanted to maintain some distance, at least for a while, until they became numerous, and then they couldn't avoid overlap with the Egyptians. But at least at this point, they wanted to maintain the faith in their clan, left alone in a distant, remote place so that they were separated from the Egyptians. Separated to some extent to be able to do this. So Pharaoh will ask, and he does, and it says here that they should say that they are keepers of livestock. Well, it's not only in Joseph's interest and the interest of the clan to be separated, but it's also in the interest of the Egyptians. 
the, the people of Israel have a valid reason to keep separated, but the Egyptians will hear the occupation of Israel, and they'll have their own reasons, which is what? Every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. Now, this is born of an elitist attitude. This elitist attitude that we have a sophisticated culture. We have a civilization. After all, we have our pyramids. You Canaanites didn't build any pyramids. Nobody else built, built, uh, made all these pyramids. So if we did, we are superior. Our civilization is superior. And shepherds and others like that, especially foreigners, yeah. these are foreign shepherds. These are lowly people, so they are loathsome to us. We despise people like that. It would be like the politicians today who call the citizens of their own country deplorables and irredeemable. Deplorable and irredeemable. It's the same attitude. Um, there's a, another factor, and that is that what they sacrifice to God, yeah. being of that culture and their own gods, what they sacrifice to their gods will be a problem for the Egyptians, offensive to the Egyptians. Um, in Genesis, well, one more place before we move from Genesis. Genesis 43, 32. 43, 32. It says, So they served him by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews, for that is loathsome to the Egyptians. In this case, it's more having to do with the ethnicity and what's associated with that ethnicity, that foreign group. It was loathsome. In, chapter, in our chapter, chapter 46, it has to do with their occupation, which also makes them loathsome. In Exodus chapter 8, Exodus chapter 8, verse 26, there's something else that makes it loathsome for Egyptians to intermingle freely with the Hebrews. Exodus 8, 26. But Moses said, It is not right to do so, for we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God what is an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice what is an abomination to the Egyptians before their eyes... Will they not then stone us? So they had qualms about the religion of the Hebrews. And therefore it would have not been suitable to them. For these reasons, they kept separate. And it all eventually is according to the plan of God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.